you are listening to Incorruptible Massachusetts. Our goal is to help people understand state politics. So we're investigating why it is so broken. We're imagining what we can have here in Massachusetts if we fix it. And we're reporting on how you can get involved. So today, uh, if you if you want to have an uplifting, feel great about your day, don't listen to this because we're going to talk about climate change. <laughs> it's going to be pretty depressing. But we hope by the end that we're talking about what we can really do here, um, which which is inspiring. Um, I know we were just chit-chatting about how the other day, last week, it was like 95 degrees, multiple days in a row. We're all you know, going crazy, uh, you know, buying window air conditioners. And then uh, a day later, or was it a day and a half later, I went outside and I had, I needed a coat. <laughs> it was like 55 degrees. And I was like, uh, my, I was just confused. I was like, yeah. how do I reconcile this? You know, 40 um, degrees in like four days. Yeah. 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 Uh, super quick. And there have been some terrible just terrible news about the temperatures in the Northwest. It was 108. My brother lives in Seattle. It's 108 there. My uh, nephew lives in Portland. It was 116 degrees in Portland. And I believe that was multiple days in a row. Um, they say that the roads in Seattle, like I, the Interstate 5, is the roads are just buckling, right? The concrete's expanding and it's just breaking up into pieces. Um, I know in, they were also talking about BC where it was pretty terrible. And in Lytton, British Columbia, um, it was uh, 116 degrees uh, and then 118 and then 120. One thing I saw somebody putting out, I'm trying to find so I can find the exact stat. Somebody putting out about how cra- the weather on Christmas last year, because it's 2020 and July 4th this year, weren't actually that dissimilar. Which is, which is a fundamentally disorienting thing to think about. Very disorienting. For sure. Yeah, that... Uh, Should we do BC... intros? Oh, now, the, the intros, now that of course. Got, here we go. Now that we've gotten straight into it. The, man, we, I'm just like jumping right in here. Absolutely. Um, Jordan, why don't you go first? Uh, my name is Jordan Burke Powers. I use he, him. I have a new contraption today. Um, and so you're not going crazy if you think it's there. Uh, and um, I have 11 years experience in uh, politics. Great, and that and you, you won't hear it, but you will see, if you're watching the video, you will see his uh, new contraption, which looks amazing. Uh, yeah, like shout, shout out to the new setup there. Uh, Jonathan, Cohn, <laughs> uh, he has been working in different ele- progressive electoral and issues campaigns uh, since 2013. I'm amusingly, I'm, I'm rapidly approaching the uh, kind of, the eight-year anniversary of mine having moved to Massachusetts. Awesome. Happy anniversary on that. Yeah. Our game. Woo-hoo. And I'm <laughs> Anna you, Callahan. Uh, she, her, with Medford. Um, super interested in what's happened at the state level. So, all right, climate change. Ouch. It is not fun. <laughs> um, especially in Pakistan, where in uh, Jacobabad it was 126 degrees, and they were talking about how it is... Like you, you you can't act, like your body cannot can no longer function at those temperatures. Yeah, it was too hot, according to scientists, for humans to live. So there are now places on in the world, you know, that we inhibit, which we have made through us. We have made too hot for us to live in. Yeah. Um, if that's not a warning sign, I don't know what is. Yeah, broke a world temperature record. That's right. It's also just striking seeing all the stuff out of the Pacific Northwest as well when you're seeing the places like 
one doesn't think of Portland or Seattle as being particularly hot places. And they've like, I've seen photos of people showing it's like 115 degrees or something like that when probably doesn't even get as hot as it does here in the summer traditionally. And we're not even at the highest end of it. Yeah, and nobody has air conditioners. Yeah. Yeah, which is especially the striking thing. If you're not used to, mm-hmm. if you're not used to extreme heat, you don't have the infrastructure for it. And then I was talking to my mother-in-law who lives in uh, Minnesota. And last uh, winter, she was talking about the polar vortex, which is, I don't know how many people know what this is, but the mm-hmm. jet stream is strong and straight when the difference in temperature between the Arctic and the equator are, is high. And because the Arctic is heating faster than the equator, uh, that means that the jet stream is weakening and it's wobbling and it brings like Arctic cold down into places like Minnesota and North Dakota, where it's getting down to like minus 40, minus 50 degrees in mm-hmm. the wintertime. Yeah. And so for those, for those of you who, who don't quite understand the jet stream, if you want Massachusetts or London or Paris to be inhabitable, or more importantly, Minnesota, because of the curve that it does, uh, we need a functioning jet stream. And one of the one of the parts of climate that we don't think about a lot is just not just that it's going to get hotter overall, but that it messes with the systems that keep mm-hmm. the sort of we inhibit that we, we inhabit the earth based on predicted temperatures. And those mm-hmm. are changing dramatically. And when we change them dramatically, it changes what is literally where we can live and not live. Um, you know, those are the pieces that we don't think about. It's just how even before we sort of heat up the earth to a place where it's uninhabitable, we are also changing the earth and whether or not we can live in certain spots. Reminds me also kind of as it relates to agriculture, because different crops grow in specific bands based on the birth and ranges of temperatures that they'd experience. So if that average temperature grows up too much and you experience a lot of days that it's just either too hot or too cold for a certain crop, it, that can have massive Im- impacts for for agriculture and just food access in general. Yeah, and then the other thing to yeah, think about I mean, is it's, it's not just temperature. So there are a mm-hmm. ton of things that are affected on the planet because of climate change that, that are not temperature. And like the acidification of the oceans, for example, mm-hmm. is one of those. And I was reading some terrifying statistics that you know coral reefs, which feed like 500 million people around the world, um, uh, was saying that the coral reefs in all 29 reef containing World Heritage Sites would cease to exist by the end of this century if we continue to emit greenhouse gases under a business as usual. If we just keep doing what we're doing right now, like coral reefs in all of the sites that they are in will cease to exist. Yeah, I mean, you know, the things, um, and and thinking about the like, just the biodiversity, the life, um, the things we care about, I will tell you like my, you know, important things to me, that we're affecting coffee and wine are pl- are things that are dramatically, whether or not we can have them, right? There's going to be shortages of those things, let, yeah. al- let alone what's happening with chocolate. Um, for those of you who care about cocoa, right? Those are all things that we're affecting. So, you know, we, human beings are, we, we tend to think of the, as yesterday is going to be the same as tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe in that. And that is our, that's sort of how humans are able to go about our things. It's how we rationalize the world. It's, it's into our, our genes to like, that's how we figure things out. But the truth is, it's not what's happening. We are, we are literally the frogs in a boiling pot of water, um, unless we do something. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> I love that you're mentioning coffee. That's actually, to me, the single thing that you just got to say to people, look, if we keep doing that this bad, there will be no more coffee. <laughs> and then we'll get all these people jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, that's all you got to say. No more coffee. <laughs> so funny. So, you know, bad. California wildfires, bad. It's like do, like, do it, like, do it, do it, like, do it for like, people in countries that are at risk. Uh, do it for your grandchildren. Uh, do it for the coffee. The coffee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. That's all you got to say. I mean, you know, it'll be there. It's just like, it's like everything else. It's you, there, there's regions that have expertise. They have places yeah. that know how to do it. They all those things, and and because we're changing the climate, the ability to grow those crops, the sort of predictability of how you grow those crops lessens, and it's going to become a, it's going to be more expensive because it's going to be harder yeah. to grow if the places that we normally grow them can't sustain them. And as we're talking, as we started off the show on, if the temperatures can like, it's really hard to grow crops if you have a forty degree difference in four days. That's a lot. For, yeah. that stresses out plants you think it stresses out your indoor plants imagine what it's doing to the to, to our food supply my zucchinis seem to be doing fine <laughs> like i wanted zucchini plants that grew out of my compost we didn't plant any we literally just put our compost in there and nothing but zucchini grew but uh but i agree with you uh, i will say that if all the bees die out then we're effed because like what is it a third or two-thirds or some huge number of plants that we depend on for food will no longer be able to be pollinated and they will die very quickly. And I think coffee is one of those. So it's not just temperature, but like there are these other delicate balance things that if we lose the bees, yep. we're screwed. So, you know, we need to be limiting our, our temperature. We need to be limiting um, the global average temperature to below two Celsius above pre-industrial levels in line with the Paris Agreement. And we are passing it. You know, um, the, the there was recently some readings in the Arctic that had us above 350 parts per billion, which is the red zone. That's like the like, oh my God, we're in trouble. And we're there sooner than any of us, like any scientists thought we'd be there. So we're not only are we not headed in the right direction, we're headed in the wrong direction faster than we had that anybody was predicting. And I don't think that this is like news to, to listeners of this show, right? This is, this is not something that we're like breaking some, some news to people. It's more like listeners to this show, as well as like millions of other people in Massachusetts understand and already, and would even, according to polling, would pay more money, would gladly pay more money for Massachusetts to be like on the forefront of a, a real Green New Deal. Um, and I'd like for us to talk a little bit about what happened last session because they did pass some legislation for the first time in how many years had it been before they had, since they had passed any well, they, environmental they've, legislation? They've done small bore stuff. It was the first time that they did something of, of like scale in a while. Um, and it was actually, it technically ended up being at the very beginning of the new session when they ended up actually passing it. The um, the kind of the next we get the formal name of it an act creating a next generation roadmap for Massachusetts climate policy uh, that because they ended up ended up actually falling into this session because of the tendency to delay when they finally came to a consensus on climate legislation it was so late in the session that Charlie Baker was able to pocket was able to that that he was able to say actually I don't like this that and the other part of the bill so I'm not going to sign it. 
and there was nothing that they could do about it. So they actually had to refile it this refile it this session uh, and then and have and pass it anew. And credit to them that that actually showed in some ways I think actually for all of criticisms I have, I do think that Ron Mariano is 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 less of like chummy with Charlie Baker than than Bob DeLeo was, that that was actually uh, kind of a, a positive example of the Senate president and the House speaker deciding that like actually we're going to align together against the governor as opposed to a perhaps more common occurrence of the governor and the, and the House speaker aligning against the Senate. Um, but uh, the one thing with the bill, did, it did a number of significant things. However, the one, one point I've often raised when discussing the, the roadmap bill is that a lot of it is about targets. It's targets, it's some regulatory policy changes. It basically have like codifying a 2050 roadmap plan with like a net zero emissions limit. Uh, quick small thing there. there, there I know there was a lot of tension in the environmental community about the whole concept of net zero itself because net zero does not mean zero, right? That means that you can still allow the pollution to happen. You just need to offset it. Um, my favorite kind of analogy for offsets is always from the facilities director of my undergrad who called them buying indulgences, uh, that, which is effectively what you're doing. You're saying, well, it's okay that we do all this stuff here as long as we, we, we basically buy, buy our right to do it, but you're not actually taking, the, the, given all of the ways in which communities around the polluting sites get that impact, that still stays. But it did set targets stronger, like uh, kind of stronger than a number of other states have, um, as well as the uh, statewide emissions reductions of, what is this, about 50% from 1990 levels by 2030 uh, and up to 85% by 2050. Um, that's actually more ambitious than what California has. But notably, California is not on track to meet its goal, which I think gets to the, to the, the big point. And as well as when thinking about like the renewable energy goal, it's, it helps escalate our uh, kind of our renewable energy portfolio standard, the percentage of renewable energy that a utility that kind of the utilities have to have to have. But again, it's the question of we can set these goals and they're good and they're important, but we also need to have the policy infrastructure and investments to make achieving those goals even possible. And there are certain small things in the bill. It, it increases the offshore wind procurement, um, not as far as it should, uh, that according to the National Renewable Energy Lab Laboratory, identified 8,000 megawatts on the Cape alone, and it just, the bill just increased it to about two thirds of that. So like we could do, and had a number of good steps around equity uh, and around codifying a definition of environmental justice for better process and a better appliance standards. Uh, helping because we tend to be strong on efficient on efficiency grounds moving there but the when it comes to our emissions so much of that comes from the transportation sector and if we're not addressing how we get around we're not making as much of a dent as we need to it's like two-thirds or something right two-thirds of our emissions approximately in massachusetts come from transportation and there's there's not a lot of movement there yeah, because it was something I remember reading a good article by uh, former Secretary of Transportation Jim Aloisi about in Commonwealth about how it just kind of sidestepped the bill just sidestepped transportation policy more broadly, uh, whether it comes both the, the need of the kind of 
how you address the cars and buses, et cetera, but especially how you get people out of cars and how you get the, and, and the many different ways, that, things that we need to do, because even just let's say like electrification of right, if you get people to have cars that don't rely as heavy on gas, like you're still relying on cars. <laughs> and you're, they're, they're, they're still materials heavy. Uh, they're, and they're still, even if it's not gas, it's still taking in a lot from like they're electric. And whereas walking uses just so much less, biking uses so much less, buses, trains, and, and what impact that has on the built environment broadly. Yeah, I mean, this this gets to, I, I think a lot about this, it's just, it gets to infrastructure problems, right? Like we don't, mm-hmm. even if you, even if every car were electric on the road, that elect, that power needs to come from somewhere. And a lot of that mm-hmm. power is still coming from fossil fuels, right? So it fixes one problem, but you're straining a system that's already pretty strained and you haven't built the infrastructure. You don't have the ability, you don't have the ability to get that power around around places very well. You know, our infrastructure is, is falling apart. It's not very good. Um, and, you know, we lose a lot of, you know, we have gas that, that leaks all the time. Um, I was reading, I, I saw a whole thing actually on Samantha B about gas stoves and how that's an equivalent, mm-hmm. like that alone is the, you know, besides obviously the gas in your house. So it's actually a very toxic way to make food, but it is also, um, it is also a emitter of, of carbon mm-hmm. dioxide, right? It is another emitter of carbon dioxide. So there's all these infrastructure things that we have um, that we don't, that like, you know, we don't have the infrastructure to meet our goals. And so it's really important. I think we should always celebrate victories because we don't get enough of them. It's really important to set broad goals, right? Like that's how you, otherwise you can't meet them. But we don't have the infrastructure right now to meet them. And we have a governor who's interested in like giving away money to rich people as opposed to just like investing in the things we don't work. Like he's cut transportation. He's made it harder to get around through public Mm. transportation. And when he has opportunities to invest in those systems, because that's literally going to be how we survive as a civilization, as a people, right? Like that's how people are going to survive. He's like, "Eh, let's give it to rich people. (laughs) You know, the legis, you know, we need to have a vision for where this money is going to go, but not just the money we're getting because we're sort of bringing in more taxes than we thought there's going to be federal money coming in. Where is that money going? Is it going to go to creating jobs that build us for the future, that enable us to be able to survive as a, as a people, <laughs> as human beings on this earth, right? Are we going to build towards that or are we not? Yeah. Because we really are at that point. And, and one and, thing that I, oh, Jonathan, go ahead. Oh, yeah, just quickly, just to comment, I felt like the investments that we need and how like they actually would improve like often the experience of, of living in places reminded me of one of my favorite uh, kind of political cartoons, which was from, I forget what year it actually was. And I'm trying to, was that 2009? I'm trying to actually read it. By Joel Pett, who's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist from the Lexington Herald Leader that people probably remember described it. It's the one where it's at a climate summit and uh, you have somebody saying, uh, what if it's a, a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? And like on top of the board, it's like energy independence, preserving rainforests, sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewables, clean water and air, healthy children, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important to clear not only that like the response to climate change can also be a good kind of for when it comes to say like job creation out of a recession and making sure that those are good jobs you're getting, but also insofar as the things that we need to do to address it are often things that help with cleaner air and cleaner water, that's basic quality of life that people yeah. deserve. 
wouldn't it be terrible if it's actually a hoax and we create a better world for no reason? <laughs> that would just be awful. Yeah, I mean, what, what a terrible world it would be to be easily get around without admitting things. <laughs> Right, exactly. For yes. houses not to like leak yeah. like sieves and just pour heat and money yeah. out the door, you know, oh, that would that would be terrible, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it I, sounds- just, I, I would just say it, it does, you know, because the other part to this, which I think is so great about what's happening in the environmental justice movement, is the linkages of this to people's lived experiences, especially people of color. And one of the things that we found in polling that has really helped actually move some of this conversation is that when you asked people who live in cities, mostly people of color, especially Latinx families, if they think of if they are if they think of themselves as environmentalists or care about the environment, it was higher than white folks. Like we have a vision of who environmentalists are as being white people, but it's not. It's the people who live on the tail end of this terrible capitalist system, right? The, those are people who are like, yeah, my lived environment is crap and we need to change it dramatically, right? So imagine if you could get around, not just sort of go into the middle of town and out of town, right? You, you could go mm-hmm. into Boston and then go to the suburbs, but you can actually get around, Imagine getting around the state and your city fast and clean where you're not having to cough after you get off. And you can read a book while you're doing it. That affects us. That affects a lot of people. Right. Right. It affects a lot of people who are currently at the, like, you know, it's hard to get around. It's expensive. It's really expensive to take public transportation. It's hard to get around. It's not, it's not reliable. And then you get off and it's spitting out God knows what. And you're coughing, right? Like, I remember the first time I had air that was clean. I, like, coughed because my lungs were like, I don't know what this is. What is this fresh air? <laughs> City kid, right? Like, what is this fresh air that you're trying? Like, I'm like, ah, what is that? <laughs> you know? Um, like, we would be. So I want to kind of bring this all together because we've talked about infrastructure. We're talking about transportation. We talked a little bit, you know, about, like, housing and, and housing leaking uh, heat. And, um, and also gas stoves and that sort of thing. And like, when you talk about all these things together, especially if you throw in jobs and climate, we're talking about what people think of as a green new deal. Um, mm-hmm. And I do want to mention that I feel like once Medicare for all became known and everybody loved it, suddenly every candidate had their own special Medicare for all that was not Medicare for all, but meant something totally different, but was called Medicare for all. And I feel like that happens with the Green New Deal as well. There, there was a suite of bills that had been named the Green New Deal for Massachusetts and yet had no jobs, had no, you know, just didn't include housing. Didn't, it was just like, it was, a, it was like six bills that like some mostly had something to do with environment. And yet, um, my friends in the environmental movement were, were bothered that this was being called a Green New Deal. Because once you say that and then you pass it or some of it, then you're like, we've done it, we're done, mm-hmm. you know? And so this concept that we're talking about, like Massachusetts could do this. And it would be especially important after COVID when a lot of people do not have jobs. They do yeah. not have the jobs they had before. People are looking for fulfilling work and there's a ton of work to be done. We got to overhaul the transportation system. We got to overhaul our buildings. And there's a huge amount of work, and that leads to jobs. Um, you know, it leads to uh, a, 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 a rebuilding our infrastructure. It leads to changing our transportation. It leads to all of these things that we've been talking about. 
Yeah, and I just want to I just want to give a good example of it. So a few years ago, Worcester got a ton of money when we passed. I don't know, it was, I guess some time ago, when Massachusetts passed money for jobs in the green sector, and um, and our um, there were some local there was a local group that worked mostly with youth of color and and had a lot of youth who were so called at risk, which is in itself a problematic term, but let's just like put that. That's like a different podcast, um, you know, at risk youth, and they were deletting a lot of Worcester housing and you know that's Worcester had a lot of leaded houses I I live in a house that was yeah and and I was and I live in a house that was deleted by this group and you know they provided jobs for young people that was subsidized by the government they learned skills in the process and a lot of those people went on to start companies a lot of those young youth of color started companies that work on deleting because they learned expertise in that process that was enabling them to have futures and you know a lot of what happens in in is that people understand that they've been divested from people in in, in West Virginia. The reason that they're angry is because we don't care about them. They see that they understand that politicians have forgotten about them. They haven't provided real opportunities. People see it. Young people, especially young people of color in communities in the in the inner cities, they know that society just wants them to go away. It wants to police them in such a place that just keeps them housed, keeps them away from the regular folks, and gives them no future. If we start giving people opportunities to excel, to choose, and to be a part of you know a vision, right? Like it's also that they're making the world a better place during this work. If we connect all those three things, we're providing futures that are worthwhile for people that they're going to want to invest in themselves in, right? So there's just, these linkages are really important. It's not just Mm -hmm. that we will then save the environment, right? As, and like enable us to live because currently we're on path to not be able to live on this earth, which like fun that is, Um, you know, we're also providing these, there's also these linkages between providing people futures that are worthwhile, that are union, that are well-paid, right? Providing futures that are investing in those things and making the lived experiences of people who live in these communities better, healthier, live longer, right? Like these are, there are all these knock-on benefits to doing these mm-hmm. things, which is probably why there's so much pushback against it. <laughs> so I love that vision. It's really amazing. Um, I, I hope that our... State House and the people, there's a group of people there called Leadership. I don't see a ton of vision. I want to see more vision. I want to see a vision like that coming from the folks at the State House and the leadership at the State House. Um, and we will be back next week with more about what's happening here in Massachusetts. Thanks so much, everybody.